Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church. And once again, we are going through the book of Deuteronomy, chapter by chapter. We're uh, in a section right now that's focused on the laws of the Israelites as they're looking out over the land of Canaan that they're about to possess. Um, This section here is focused on how the Israelites are to worship God once they get into the land. How are they to honor God who has rescued them from all of the slavery and impoverishment that they endured in Egypt. This is going to be a fun episode where we dive into what their um, calendar year looked like and uh, how they appointed specific festivals and how much joy they had as they celebrated year after year. So come along for the ride as we get into this chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, We're in um, chapter 16 today, which is a um, chapter that's still going through a lot of the um, worship laws of this whole section. Um, If you've been paying attention to the last couple episodes, um, you know that uh, a lot of these um, chapters have been really specifically focused on what the Israelites are supposed to do once they get into the land of Canaan and how they're supposed to set up um, their worship system once they're in the land of Canaan. I jokingly say that this is kind of like um, the uh, bylaws of their church. <laughs> if you don't know much about how like churches work today, um, they will like uh, set up like um, a sec, uh, basically like a long um, documented um, uh, piece of. Uh, well, it's really just a document that they write up that. Um, uh, formulates all of their laws on how the church is to be governed, how it's to be, uh, how it's to worship, um, what where it's where its physical location is, um, and it's uh, actually for like legal purposes. You actually like will submit that to um, whatever state you're in, and um, it's a whole long process that actually I just went through um, with uh, Wayfarers. Um, I actually got the privilege of writing up our bylaws um, with the help of our senior pastor here, um, Nick Griffin, and uh, yeah, it's it's. It's an interesting thing to read Deuteronomy after having gone gone through that because um, it's very similar in a lot of ways. This is uh, uh, kind of hitting on a lot of the same points. Um, a lot of the interesting things you'll find in a, a church's bylaws is they'll usually have like a section on like um, like what their what their core beliefs are. They'll have like a section on like how they approach marriage. They'll have a section on like how they approach. Um, uh, like uh, elders, that's usually a big thing. They'll have a, a section on how they have, approach um, finances. I mean, you know, you have everything. Um, here, what's interesting is kind of an, even in, to contrast to what I've seen so much of like different churches bylaws and stuff is the focus is primarily on worship. Um, worship is the main thing. Um, uh, where and how you are to worship is the big questions for this kind of 
community here. Um, and uh, that's no exception in this chapter. Um, this chapter is specifically focused in on um, how they are to worship with festivals, um, which is something that um, is really hard to kind of communicate to y'all um, because we don't really have any kind of like um, a thing that we do in America that kind of relates to this. The closest I guess we would say is holidays, but holidays do not carry the same kind of um, uh, communal aspect that you'll see in these festivals, and we'll 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 break down a little bit of what's going on in these, um, why they're so cool, why I love them so much, and how um, like honestly in awe of them I am. Um, but like, uh, yeah, it's a really sad thing because like it, trying to get you guys to be set in kind of this mindset of what this would have looked like, uh, it's a little hard because um, we don't have any kind of. Um, uh, current thing that we do that's anywhere close to what this is um and so um this episode is going to be one where i'm just going to have to uh, ask you to kind of put on your imaginative lenses a little bit um kind of uh listen in as this passage gets read and sort of imagine what it would be like to live in a society and in a culture where this happened every year very rec- regularly. Um, and like I said, we'll, we'll kind of walk through the calendar every year of what it looked like. And um, I'm sure um, there'll be some things in it that will um, be surprising to you. And also, I hope, um, some things that will be really um, uh, life-giving for you for the purposes that they had. But remember... Uh, before we even kind of like jump into this episode, remember the main focus of this is really worship that like all of this is not just being done for the sake of having laws. Um, this is being done for the specific, um, reason of always mentally keeping a worshipful stance towards God and uh, a stance of love towards God, a stance of thankfulness towards God, a a stance of joy towards God. Um, Those are kind of the main um, functions of why they would do these things. And uh, you'll see that as we dive into this episode. But yeah, let's let's go ahead and uh, listen to this chapter. And like I said, just kind of put on that imaginative lens as we listen in. Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd, at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. You must not sacrifice the Passover in any town the Lord your God gives you, except in the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you must sacrifice the Passover in the evening, when the sun goes down, on the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. Roast it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. Then in the morning return to your tents. For six days eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day hold an assembly to the Lord your God and do no work. 
Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Follow carefully these decrees. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. All right, so like I said before, um, there's a lot of festivals in this passage. There's three in particular. Um, interesting, too, you may have heard um, the opening of this passage opens with observe the month of Aviv, and uh, I'm assuming most of you probably have never heard that word before. Um, Aviv is just uh, a name that they had for um, the period of time between March and April. Um, in their calendar year, a lot of how the um, uh, Passover, which is this first um, celebration and festival, um, it's all organized around this that event, the Passover. Um, uh, how that worked was uh, during March or April season, um, that's basically when the um, crops would first start to like show themselves. Um, if you think about it even today, that's that's how crops work. Um, usually like that turn of from like winter to spring, um, you start seeing like all of the green come back and you start seeing like the crops start to really kind of take off in, in mid to late April, right? Um, and what was interesting is... Um, Passover would fall right in that section of time. Um, it would fall like right in, in that period in which the crops were just starting to like show. Um, and so they kind of had like a, a system in which like the month of Aviv sort of uh, was like the moment began almost to sorts with the Passover. Um, also, if you are unfamiliar with how Passover worked, um, Passover is the moment um, instituted at um, the Exodus story. I think it's found in chapter 12, I believe of Exodus. Yep. Um, chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. Um, when they are, uh, in Egypt, um, the 10th plague is the plague that, um, 
destroys all of the firstborn children um, in the land of Egypt. And um, unfortunately, uh, the Israelites were actually not uh, like uh, um, they they also were could have suffered that same plague. Um, it wasn't like uh, God uh, just decided not to um, harm the Israelites. What they had to do to in order to um, uh, save their firstborn sons was they had to kill a lamb and paint the blood over the doorstep. And there's a whole long um, uh, ritual that they would go through on Passover night um, that you can read in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, um, where they basically had to prepare bread without yeast. That's why yeast comes up here. Um, because uh, basically when you use yeast, as and this is something I know because I, I make sourdough bread all the time, um, when you use yeast, you have to wait a long time for it to rise to the specific a level amounts for it to like work properly and you have to wait for your dough to rise a, a long period of time and so it's just a long process that takes a long time and God specifically tells them in Exodus 12 like this plague is going to happen so fast and it's going to upset so many people in Egypt and they're just going to want you out like right away there's going to be no time to make bread you're just going to want to get out as fast as possible. Um, there's just no preparation that you have time for. And so they're like basically to like cook the meat, like almost like as like a flash cook, almost just like get it to the temperature that you needed to get to. Um, don't spend time trying to make like a big five course meal with it or anything like that. It, this, this whole, um, Passover event is designed, um, to be as speedily done as possible because they're, um, uh, about to leave Egypt. And it's, it's really interesting because like they were even like tasked with like, um, garbing themselves with, um, like, uh, travel attire. So they didn't even like, uh, have to like spend time, um, putting on all the travel attire and clothes. Like they basically prepped for the, um, escape journey the night before on this night. And so what they would do is every, every year they would re, live that they would relive that moment of like um eating a meal super fast um uh putting on all your travel attire the night before um making sure uh there was no meat left the next morning because uh there would, you couldn't take meat with you on a journey. Um, they hadn't really figured out a way to uh, make meat sanitary in that way yet. And uh, uh, basically, like that's what this first festival became. It became called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread just means bread without yeast. And yeah, that was the idea. Is like you had this seven-day period where on the first of the seven days, you would do no work. And that would be kind of this Passover night, essentially. Um, and that Passover night would be um, where you went through the ritual of um, uh, cooking and like um, uh, worshiping God. Usually they would read the Exodus story aloud that night as well. Um, and then you would go through seven days of having no yeast in the entire period of time. And uh, on the seventh day, then they would also have a celebration and hold an assembly, um, and they would do no work as well on that day. So they'd have a, a day of no work on the first day, and they'd have a day of no work on the seventh day um, that kind of capped off this week of um, uh, basically having no yeast and just eating flatbread for seven days. Interestingly, too, um, in this passage, um, which is a little different than the Exodus 12 passage, um, they were tasked with taking 
all parts of their family back to Jerusalem. Um, and uh, having this festival um, basically at the place where God's temple is or tabernacle is. Um, so in the um, period of like Samuel, that would have been Shiloh, but in in the time of David and Solomon and the kings, that would have been Jerusalem. And uh, yeah, it was a part of the whole um, story was that basically once March, April rolled around, um, they had to pack up their entire family and uh, basically journey to this area and then have a seven-day um, festival where it started with flatbread from the first day all the way to the seventh day. Um, this is how things worked out in this, uh, the first century. This is why, um, um, if you guys know, um, Jesus was crucified on Passover uh, week and so this whole festival um, was going on during the time that he was being crucified and this is also why there were so many people um, to witness his crucifixion is because so many people that were Jews from all these different areas around the area uh, were all um, pulled back into uh, the city of Jerusalem for this festival here um, uh, there's actually been some speculation that um, uh, Jesus's um, uh, um, Passover day um, was uh, Jesus might actually have been crucified on um, Wednesday instead of Good Friday. There's a whole nerdy rabbit hole you could go down to of why that works out. But part of the reason that works out is because um, there's actually like technically the Jews would consider the first day of um, this festival a Sabbath day. And so um, seeing how like the Sabbaths kind of aligned maybe like um, works out in the gospel narratives. Like I said, there's some YouTube videos that I'll link in the show notes about like how that works out and stuff. Um, but uh, it is interesting just how um, this whole festival kind of um, relates to the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's a good rabbit hole to go down if you're ever interested. Um, another thing, too, is um, you'll notice that um, there is a specific uh, focus with this festival in particular. Um, that comes up uh, especially in, let's see here, there's a specific verse. Um, yeah, um, that comes up in verse uh, 3. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, um, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. There's some nerdy stuff about like how different sections of um, the biblical text work. Um, there's kind of a chiastic structure here, which is just really a fancy word to say that there's a poetic um, structure to this whole section and that middle phrase so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure in Egypt is dead set in the midter in, in midter in the middle of this um, whole poetic structure um, and in Hebrew poetic structures um, whatever phrase is like right in the middle is always the most important um, it's the point that is the most uh, uh, like uh, valued for the writer to try and communicate and everything um, sort of revolves around that central statement. Um, this is important because for Passover, um, there's a big uh, point of memory. Um, the idea is that um, for a people group that probably at this point, at least um, the writings would not be passed around. They wouldn't just be passing Deuteronomy or numbers around. Um, they wouldn't like 
have everyone be able to read it. Um, uh, you would just hear about it through word of mouth. Um, you'd hear your parents telling you stories, right? This was a very oral tradition heavy culture. And so the idea of like, uh, having like everybody has like a Bible where they can just like learn and read from, um, that's a very modern thing and that's not something that they would do. And so the way that they would remember, stories remember the things that happened in their history that were really important was basically reliving them and that's why um, this Passover is instituted this festival is um, instituted is um, uh, they basically get to relive it every year um, and reliving it every year cements it in your memory more and more to the point that like that's a story that you'll always um, have and they would read the texts as they um, uh, uh, lived it out. So they would read the Exodus story when they lived this out. And so they would have the sense of the story getting um, replanted uh, in their mind again after a year of it kind of like getting more gray like memory does, right? Um, and so there is kind of a, this element in which um, they had set up from the very beginning sort of a, a, a way to keep their memories sharp and their memories um, always fixed on the story that God had done for them, um, this rescue from Egypt. Um, it's also really important to think of too because Passover becomes so important to um, the New Testament and to the Christian story even. Um, the story of Exodus and how um, the death of a firstborn son is what saves the people of um, uh, Israel from Egypt is very similar to the story of the New Testament where the death of a firstborn son saves us from sin and death. Um, those two stories basically can go over top one another and they have so many different overlapping uh, metaphors um, and themes and the early Christians knew this and they used the story of um, Passover as a moment to re, um, re not re but like uh, as a moment to really look at the story of Jesus and see how his story also lived that way so it's also really important just for our own memory's sake to keep it in mind as um, part of the story of Jesus. Um, I'll go ahead and jump into the festival of weeks here. Um, so they would have this first festival in around March to April. Around that same time, um, like I said, the um, the grain, they would uh, primarily be farming like barley and wheat. Um, and around that same time, they uh, would uh, look at uh, one of the crops of barley. And uh, once it got to a certain height during this period, around March, April, they would start to count off from there seven weeks. Um, again, uh, most of you guys know that um, seven is a number that's very um, significant in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, God created the uh, earth in seven days. Um, and uh, there's this concept of uh, seven being the number of completion and uh, every seven days the next day like the eighth day is a day of newness a day of new things happening and so um, the idea is they were to basically um, uh, like almost uh, it, it starting in verse nine it says count off seven weeks from the time you put a sickle to the standing grain um, this would most likely be like a cell a, a ceremonial um, sickling to the standing grain like it wouldn't actually be the harvest actual proper that they would do at that moment probably because uh, it wouldn't be revi- ready to harvest when they first put a sickle to the standing grain they would just put it to the um, standing grain during the March April season um, 
probably shear off one that wasn't ripe yet, and then then, then they would count off seven weeks. At the end of those seven weeks, they were they were then again to journey um, back to um, the uh, uh, city where the um, uh, temple is and they would have a second festival and this was called the festival of weeks so this would happen probably around the period of may late may to early june um, and in this period um, this this time um, they were to rejoice and celebrate um, because the harvest was about to happen and this would usually coincide right around the time that all of the grain had ripened and it was really interesting because um, uh, for a lot of uh like uh people that live in like um um just environments where uh there's uh, a lot of like camaraderie around whatever job you have maybe you have like a you work at like a big factory job or something of that nature where there's just a lot of employees um there are certain times where like all of the workers will just kind of like take a holiday that's kind of in-house so to speak um and you'll just kind of take a day where you all kind of gather have maybe like a company um uh, what would you call it, like a company party or something of those sorts. That's kind of what this festival was in a lot of ways, but on a huge scale. Um, it basically was a party, a festival that would happen right before every worker and every farmer was about to harvest every part of their farm. And, you know, it was going to be hard work to harvest. Harvest time is like really hard work. You've got to send your sons out and you're, you're like, and like, it's, it's also really grueling because you could lose things if you let it um, stay too long in the sun. Like it's a, it's a really anxious time. And so this is kind of this festival that's set up right before this hard grueling season of harvesting all of the fruit and crops um, where uh, you basically, uh, get to celebrate with all of the other people that live in your um, region and around you. And you get to invite all of the poor and the fatherless and the widows. Um, you get to invite the Levites and you get to have this big feast around May or June um, around the temple area um, in Jerusalem where you're just celebrating and drinking wine and having a good time with everyone around you before you've got to put in like a huge amount of work, um, just like an exhausting amount of work to get all of the, the funds in that you've been hoping will come in for so long. Right. Um, what's interesting about this in the Christian um, concept of it is that this ended up being um, what uh, we relate to as the day of Pentecost. Um, some of you may know that um, after Jesus was raised from the dead, um, he uh, taught the disciples for a period of maybe um, 40 to uh, 49 um, days. Um, and after that time period, uh, he basically uh told them to go back into the um, city of Jerusalem and wait um, for uh, uh, whatever was to happen to happen in Jerusalem. And so they all go back to Jerusalem after he ascends, and they end up in this um, upper room of a house where uh, right around the time of the Festival of Weeks, actually, according to that calendar, um, the Holy Spirit then comes upon them, and uh, they start speaking in multiple different languages, um, and uh, uh, it becomes such a loud and bolsterous kind of moment that um, uh, people that are like outside on the streets start hearing them and start hearing them in different languages, and they're like, what's going on? And uh, what ends up happening is... Um, that results in a impromptu sermon that 
Peter preaches to about 3,000 people that are just so interested in why they can hear um, these 12 um, Galileans speaking in their native tongue. Um, And he preaches a sermon to these 3,000, and they end up getting baptized and brought into the church that day. Um, And what's cool about it is that kind of serves as the metaphor of what this uh, festival was, right, where there's this moment of uh, celebration where they're all in an upper room, and they get the Holy Spirit, and they feel this joy and this excitement, and um, all of a sudden, from that moment, then there becomes this, like, powerful... um, imbuing presence that then forces these 12 to go outside of themselves and the celebration they just had, the prayers they just had, the fellowship they just had with one another, and then to go out and harvest from the people um, that are listening in and they reap in a harvest of 3,000 people um, that they add to the church that day, right? And that's kind of the cool thing of how the Christian um, day of Pentecost sort of maps onto the Festival of Weeks. It's really cool. Um, And it's a part of the calendar, of the Jewish calendar that happens every year, and it's a part of our Christian calendar as well. There's always a Sunday that we have that is the Sunday of Pentecost. Um, And this might be something to ask your pastor if uh, you're ever going to a church, just like asking them, like, what what is the church calendar? And like, how close are we to the Festival of uh, the Day of Pentecost? And how close are we to the day of Passover? It kind of gives you a good spectrum of like, you know, Easter to Pentecost and kind of maps on to these festivals here in a way um, still, which is really cool. Um, so one thing I did want to bring up with this is for the Jewish um, way of celebrating this, one of the interesting things they would do is when they celebrated the Festival of Weeks, they would read the book of Ruth um, when they um, celebrated it. And uh, one of the, some of you might be a little confused as to why would they read the book of Ruth? Like, what, what, what is the point of that? One of the interesting things about the book of Ruth is that it has um, uh, the same kind of Festival of Weeks calendar within it. Ruth actually goes to Bethlehem right as the um, uh, harvest is about to uh, commence, basically. Um, And actually, the whole story of her and Boaz kind of also, (laughs) the backdrop of that setting is that they're kind of right in the middle of that season of the crops are just starting to get to grow, and um, they're about to just like harvest everything. And uh, actually, when she lays her head down at the threshing floor, uh, with uh, Boaz that's like right at the end of their whole harvest season, right? Which is right where the Festival of Weeks would be. So the Festival of Weeks is actually kind of like the backdrop to that entire story. On top of that, though, um, there's a really powerful point that I think the Jews were trying to bring out with the story of Ruth is that um, Ruth is kind of the um, the day of Pentecost or the Festival of Weeks to the people of um uh, Israel who have gone through a famine, right? They, the, the story opens that Israel has a famine. So like they don't have a festival of weeks basically because they don't have the crops and this family has to go down to Moab and enjoy all of the, the food that's in Moab, which is their enemy and not where they're supposed to go. And, uh, while they're down there, they encounter Ruth, who is this, um, person that from every, like, way you cut it, even from like certain scriptures, um, is not someone that they should be involved with. And yet she's a follower of Yahweh. She's a follower of God and she wants to follow after them. And so she comes back with Naomi, even though Naomi tries to send her away and she brings 
to the people of Israel new abundance and new life when she goes back. And by the the whole story is kind of revolving around the fact that the least likely person, the most um, uh, easily judged, um, the uh, uh, female um, foreigner, um, can bring this joy and abundance and life and uh, festiveness to the people of Israel and to Boaz. Um, and that is the point of the book of Ruth in a lot of ways. Um, and it's such a powerful point to have that read every year as the day of Pentecost to think of um, Ruth being kind of like the uh, pinnacle figure of that, like the pinnacle woman of that is the woman that would be read. What's interesting too is how they would uh, org- organize the Hebrew Bible um, is Ruth is the book that f- uh, is just before, uh, is right in between Proverbs and Song of Solomon. And if you know how Proverbs uh, uh, Proverbs ends, it's has that Proverbs 31 pas- passage where it's like, a, a, a virtuous woman who can find, and it goes through like what a virtuous woman is in there and how they ordered their Bible in the Hebrew um, codexes. Um, the next book you would read would be Ruth. And it's kind of like an answer to that Proverbs 31 question. Where is this virtuous woman? Well, let me tell you about one. And this is Ruth. And then what's cool is the next book is song of Solomon, which is just uh, another look at another woman um, who is favored by Solomon. And it's this really beautiful kind of, Uh, walking through these three books, I would encourage you um, to read through it that way. Start with like Proverbs 31, read the entire book of Ruth, and then read Song of Solomon, uh, because that's uh, how they organize their Bible, and see what they were trying to do with those three books being organized the way they are. It's a beautiful way to really encounter this idea of the Festival of Weeks, and this idea of um, people that, even in their culture, were considered Um, the least valuable, um, the least, uh, um, uh, like, um, I guess just prestigious, um, like they were valued, um, by the writers of the Bible. And it's really important point to see, um, especially, um, just even today we still deal with that. And it's just something that I like to highlight whenever I can. Um, so that's the festival of weeks. They have this kind of, uh, festival where they once again go up. So we have two journeys, right? Um, you would go up in March to April and then you would go back up in like mid May basically. Um, and then you have, uh, uh, the Festival of Tabernacles, which is sometimes called the Festival of Booths. Uh, I've mentioned that one in a few episodes uh, pre- previous to this, but we'll go through it again. Um, this festival focused on um, the Israelites going in after all the harvest had basically been complete. Everything's done. Um, this would happen during the fall season, probably, um, and uh, pretty much everything has been brought in, you've got all your stores in, you've sold all everything that you need to sell, you've got food for the rest of the year until the next harvest, and you can last it through winter, right? The hard work is done. <laughs> this this festival was the the sort of sigh of relief. And so you would bring again, you would bring um all of your like um best uh things that you had saved up, um, and you would once again go all the way to where the uh, name of the Lord was residing in the temple and you would have another fe- festival of seven days. So I want you to think about this. You would have, um, the, um, uh, 
first festival was seven days and the last festival was seven days. And then the festival of weeks, it took seven weeks of seven, yeah, seven, seven week cycles. And then you would have one day of festival for the festival of weeks, right? Um, this last one, um, this, uh, uh, one of seven days that's the uh, festival of booze they would actually like set up a bunch of tents and they would um, um, live in these tents for seven days it's probably assumed they also did this for the festival of unleavened bread I can't imagine they wouldn't do this um, but the idea with the festival of booze was to remind them that this is the time that now um, the first time they did it would have been after they got out of Egypt and they were wandering around waiting to get to Mount Sinai and while they were in that area, um, they were living in tents. And so the idea of living in um, booths or tabernacles or tents, all of those words uh, sort of mean the same thing. It just means a tent. Um, uh, living in these uh, places kind of reminded them of that time period where they were wandering, uh, uh, following Moses and Aaron as they were getting to Mount Sinai, um, and it's to remind them that they are in, uh, that the land that they're living in even now is not something that they earned themselves. We talked about that a couple episodes ago, um, but it's something that was given to them as a gift from God, and that they are just tent. Livers, right? Like to think of yourself as someone. This is something I've thought it's really interesting. Is like when you build a house, it's very permanent. Like it's a very permanent structure, and it feels like it's yours. It feels like you put yourself into it. But if you were to live in a tent in the place that you're living in right now, that does not feel permanent. It doesn't feel like you really live there. It feels like you're there on borrowed time. And that's something that I actually think God is trying to get this whole society to really think about is that they really are just a people that were given this land and he doesn't want them to feel like it's a permanent place of residence because he could take it away. And that's something we'll get into in the later chapters of Deuteronomy is that this isn't just something they get to have for the rest of their time here on earth. Um, it's possible if they don't follow after God and don't follow his laws, that they won't get to keep it. Um, and that there are many, they need to respect what they have and they need to respect the people around them. They need to respect the poor, um, and really value the thing that it is, which is a gift. And like I said, we've talked about that before in episodes before this, um, about like the idea of thinking of this as a gift, not something that you earned. Right. Um, and that's what this festival was meant to do, but there was also an element of just joy to it. Um, there's a line in here. That's the central line of this section. Once again, this is kind of set up as like a poetic section and this this line is sort of the poetic central of it which is for the lord your god will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete this is the focus of this festival joy right this time period of um the harvest has come in. We've got all our food. We can now just go the last of the three times to the city of Jerusalem, have a big party festival, hang out for seven days with everyone, share wine, share food with the poor, the widows, the Levites, anyone that's there and just enjoy being with everyone now that the hard work is over for the year. Um, and just that huge sigh of relief that might come with that and the joy that comes along with it. You might be surprised to hear that the 
the book that they chose to read for this um, festival was the book of Ecclesiastes, um, which if you don't know what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, um, a cursory read through will uh, show you that it's a very dour book. It's a very um, somber book. And so uh, it's a very interesting choice that they made to read the book of Ecclesiastes um, with this joyous moment. And one of the interesting things when I was doing research about it was that one kind of the motivation is that Ecclesiastes isn't necessarily, we read it as moderns today as the depressing book, but if you really get at the heart of what that book's trying to communicate, um, it's not trying to say that like life sucks or that, you know, you can't appreciate good things. It is actually like, um, uh, just showing that everything is, uh, temporary. Everything is, um, like going to pass away. Right. Um, and like, it's just trying to really make sure that that's like a point that like really gets brought up in a lot of the like narrative. And what's interesting is that really maps on really well to this, the idea of living in tents, right? The idea that tents are temporary, right? They don't last forever. Um, and so it's this, it's this idea that like you can have joy, like, and you can enjoy the fact that the harvest is done and you can have that peace of knowing that that's joy. But remember that like, this is still a gift. This is not something that you'll have every day of your life. This is something that, you know, times change as they go, um, day by day and like um, you may be happy today and sad tomorrow and it's a good reminder actually that when you're having the most joyous times in life it's always good to have that counterbalance of a book like Ecclesiastes that says um, remember the point of this is not just to live to be happy right like we're not trying to live to be happy because if you try to live to be happy that's just not going to end well and that whole book is about that don't try and like chase this feeling you're having right now don't try and like make this the whole point of your life story right the point is that this is a gift that god is giving you when you chase after god and that i think is actually a really beautiful um way to kind of teach that point um to this people that could get uh carried away with that idea of um just I want life to always be the festival of booths. I want it to always be this thing. And Ecclesiastes kind of is a word that they would read to kind of remind everyone, well, remember, all this joy is just a tent for right now, right? And and I want you to keep that in mind. Um and and it's a good it's a good like I really I I think they knew what they were doing, I guess is what I'm saying. It's a powerful point to just this whole concept of um like worship even remember again all of this is worship this is how they're setting up um their um worship to god and a lot of it uh, like i said last week a lot of it is just having parties having festivals right but there's always a hidden teaching element to each of these festivals it wasn't just that they had a big party and that was it they were reading texts they were um instructing people through these year by year so that new children that they had would learn the stories of their fathers um, and that no one was left out. And that was the purpose of these laws is to really um, show how these three festivals um, through the stories that were read mapped onto their lives and how they map onto our lives. Um, What's interesting too is as Christians, um, the festival of booths doesn't really have an analog. Um, You know, like I said, um, the festival of unleavened bread 
Easter, um, the Festival of Weeks, Pentecost. The Festival of Booths sort of just kind of gets kind of lost on the wayside a little bit, uh, unfortunately. Um, but I will say that um, there is an element of the Christian story that does definitely um, take its root in this idea of um, nothing being um, uh, like final and that we're living in a perpetual season of the festival of tabernacles, I guess I would say. Um, part of the story of the Christian message is that um, the uh, you may have heard this phrase, we're in the already but not yet phase of the story of life, right? Where um, Jesus has come and resurrected and resurrection has happened and new life is in our lives and that is working in us and making us act in certain ways that we wouldn't normally act, act against our flesh, right? Um, but at the same time, there's still this struggle that's going on there. There's still this choosing, choosing that we have to make throughout our life, right? Um, and it feels like there's still brokenness and um, cruelty and sin in the world that's still not rectified yet, right? And uh, a little bit of what I think the uh, Festival of Tabernacles can bring to the Christian story is that season that all of us feel and live in, right? Where there is a period and there there is an aspect in which we always should have joy at what Jesus did on the cross and how he resurrected, right? And what that means for our lives. There should always be this joy in our lives as we walk every day of our life, hoping on God, right? There should be this joy and hope there. But also there's this sense of Ecclesiastes there, this sense of temporariness to it all, where um, it's not yet fully completed yet, and there are still some things that need some work, and the church still needs to work really hard to make those things reality. And while we get to enjoy the joy of this time of, on earth where we're living in this tent, right, this human-made, this human tent, um, we still have to look forward to the hope of one day when all of this will be complete. And we can't rely too much on the joys of this present life and get too caught up in that um, and forget that ultimately there is a second coming that's to come where everything is made right. Um, maybe that's a way to help kind of see through how the fest Festival of Tabernacles can apply to uh, your life today. I think that's a really good um, way to look at it. Um, this last section is a really short section, but um, we'll spend some time talking about it because it's it's actually pretty dense um, when you really think about it. Um, from verses 18 onwards, he has a section of how they were to appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every uh, town the Lord your God is giving you. So this is interesting. Um, the judges weren't like all situated in Jerusalem, the main city where they go to all three times a year. Every town had their own judges, right? Um, so this is uh, kind of orchestrated um, more, more kind of like <laughs> even like a, our United States would be as opposed to um, like maybe just like a, a more like kind of centralized government source, so to speak. What's interesting too about the, um, this, um, is that, um, the, you, uh, of like the appoint judges here, um, that verb actually carries with it like a, um, a you, um, you must appoint these judges. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that you is a plural you. So it's a you that's like told to the people, right? The people are to appoint these judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. So um, each 
town was to appoint who they saw fit as to be a judge over them. Um, and uh, it was left up to them to kind of figure it out, um, which uh, you'll you'll find uh, throughout the whole story, stories that follow, this becomes actually a bit of a problem. Um, they end up picking bad picks a lot of the time. Sometimes um, what will be a judge, their sons end up not being great. Actually, what's interesting about Samuel's story is Samuel is a great judge um, and he judges everyone fairly and he goes be above and beyond the call of duty. He doesn't just stay in one town, but he actually makes a circuit where he judges several different towns all in kind of this like circuit area. But once he has sons, um, they do exactly what this law says don't to do, which is they start taking bribes and they start perverting justice. Um, and so that is actually the cause of the people saying we want a king is Samuel's sons aren't good. They're breaking this law. And so they come to Samuel and they say, we don't want to have you and your lineage be judges over us anymore. We want a king. Um, and that starts the whole story off of Saul. And you can go read about that in first Samuel. Um, Interestingly, too, um, it focuses specifically on why accepting a bribe is such a bad thing for a judge. And it says it blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. If you think about this, um, um, I've talked about this a little bit before, the idea that like eyes in their culture meant a lot more than eyes do today. We think of eyes as like something that's just like an like a part of our bodies that sees things and sees light actually and has light reflected back into our brains and we understand it and interpret it right um they thought of eyes as like the thing that sees value in things the thing that sees goodness in things the thing that sees beauty in things the thing that um uh, discerns between a good and a bad thing. The thing that um, uh, can be uh, a wise decides whether or not a thing is a wise choice or a bad or a foolish choice. Right. The eye was the thing that was able to like give a window into all of the discernment of a human. Right. And so uh, when you accept a bribe, you're blinding your own eye. Right. You're you're denying all that, and you're just you know like putting like blinders over your eyes and you're letting money be the only thing you see. And that's, that's literally like essentially like, I want you to think of it that way as like um, being able to clearly see a situation and someone just shows gold right up in front of your face and kind of wags the gold in front of your face. And suddenly your eyes just looking at the gold instead of whatever the situation is. Right. That is the, that is what they saw about how this works. Um, and uh, so it made them biased. It made them, um, be judges that weren't uh, true to their word. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because that like that's something that's very true today. Even um, is something that we value is we don't want biasness when we have in our ju- uh, judicial system. Um, we want people to judge fairly and we don't want that kind of bias um, being led astray by any kind of thing. Um, and so even in this Old Testament time, they really valued the idea of an unbiased opinion. An unbiased opinion is a good thing when it comes to justice. Justice needs that um, that unbiased, that unblinded eye is what, the, what they would say. Um, uh, the last verse says, follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Um, the idea of this, the whole point of why they're to be so um, 
careful with who they appoint as judges and like what's what's going on here is that justice is a very important thing to God. Um, what's interesting about this too is the NIV is a little, it, it, it takes some liberties with how it's uh, kind of translating some of this um, in, in the uh, uh, like literal Hebrew, the idea of justice here is the word tzedek, which is um, the word often translated as righteous. Um, and a few translations will uh, actually translate this as like just justice or right righteousness. Um, and the idea is that like they're supposed to follow a, um, if uh, maybe I've talked about the definition of like righteousness before, but just to kind of like reiterate it again, righteousness in this context always means right relationship with another party, right? So if we have a good standing, you and I, and we have like no problems with one another, then we have righteousness existing between each other. Um, we have right standing existing between each other. Um, and uh, justice as a word is deciding that right standing, making that right standing happen, right? So if you and I have suddenly have a problem, what justice does is figure out who's in the right and who is in the wrong with that problem. And once that has been resolved, we now have righteousness again. We now have sedek with one another again. Um, and that's really what this whole point of appointing judges is about is that everybody is supposed to have righteousness with one another. One who has this like sedek with one another where things are, have worked out. And I don't mean just like, you know, uh, any old willy nilly thing. Like this isn't to do with just like, Oh, this person doesn't like you or something like that. Righteousness isn't about like how you might emotionally feel about another human. What righteousness is about is how, like if you like, broke one of the laws against another person, if you sinned against them, right? That is when um, righteousness comes in. And that is when you need a judge to uh, have justice be wrought so that um, you then have the return of that relationship with one another. So I want, I want you to really think about the fact that even in this time period where justice was harsh, there still was this element in which all of it was trying to work towards fixing the broken relationship that sin causes between two parties, right? Even then, that is the focus of the law, is to rectify the situation by giving out a just judgment um, that then decides the matter and then assigns the relationship back to its original standing after the justice has been merited out. Maybe that helps a little bit in how this whole system works and why they were so focused on it. Why does that matter to worship? Well, think about it. Like if you have a bunch of people that have sinned against one another um, and then you have all these festivals, there's going to be a lot of infighting going around like, oh, you stole my oxen. I don't want to like have a festival with you right now. Like there's a lot of that kind of stuff that could happen. And so having these judges here set up as a, like a way to prevent that kind of, um, breaking of sedic, right? Like that breaking of that right re relationship you would have with other people, um, is put in place so that this worship and this, this, these three festivals that you have every year, um, are the really cool things that really, have a communal aspect to them where they're not um, failing um, and they're not um, just a bunch of infighting and bitterness, right? Um, that's this chapter. I, I really hope that you got something really um, 
helpful out of this. I found this chapter so beautiful and inspiring, and I really hope it brought some challenge to your life, um, some peace in your life, um, and um, some wonder and awe even of the beauty of um, the Old Testament and how the Israelites were supposed to live. It is so sad to say that we, again, are not sure they ever really did all of this all the time. Um, There are parts of this that we know they did, um, but the whole every part of it, um, like the whole of Deuteronomy living out every part of it. Um, unfortunately it's, it probably was never lived out to its fullest way it could have been. And that is a very sad thing because it's so beautiful. Um, thank you again, guys so much for, um, tuning into this episode and I'll be back in your feed again next week. Thanks guys. Bye.